on the 13th of March 2021, Independence Live hosted an online hop-in conference on the topic of resetting drug policy in Scotland. Speakers included Angela Constance, MSP, Minister for Drugs, Ronnie Cowan, MP, Vice-Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Drug Policy Reform, Peter Crycant, Drug Policy Campaigner, Darren McGarvey, author, journalist, musician and social commentator, Simon McLean, LEAP, and Anne-Marie Ward, Chief Executive, Faces and Voices of Recovery UK. The conference began with an address from Angela Constance. Good evening and thank you for inviting me to participate in this important event. In Scotland we face a national public health emergency. Drug-related deaths are tragic and avoidable and our national crisis is our national shame. Each person who dies a drug-related death is a fellow citizen, someone's brother, sister, son, daughter, mother or father. And we must do more, do it better and faster to save lives. This is why the Scottish Government have launched a national mission to reduce drug-related deaths and harms. And I'm pleased to say that I have secured additional funding of £250 million over the next five years of Parliament to provide that mission with the resources it needs. This includes a £100 million investment and residential rehabilitation too. And I've also allocated an extra £5 million for this financial year, providing additional funding to alcohol and drug partnerships, frontline services and grassroots organisations so they can meet the urgent need in their areas. The priority for the national mission is to embed emergency work to save lives with the work to improve lives ensuring harm reduction and recovery work is rooted in our work to improve mental health, tackle homelessness, adverse childhood experiences and address poverty and inequality. We need a culture of change and a culture of compassion to ensure our services are responsive, flexible and person-centred. And I want to ensure every person who needs to can access the treatment that is right for them as quickly as possible. Now this evening you will have the opportunity to hear from people with lived experience and I can assure you that hearing from those people with both lived and living experience will be at the very heart of our national mission. And I will hear from those people and their families who have received too little too late and I will hear from parents who are worried sick about that phone call or the knock at the door. And I will hear from those who are in recovery or treatment. And I am determined to find the best way to reach out to those who are currently living with addiction and are not in treatment or engaged with services. It is the job of government at all levels to lead, to have a razor-like focus on implementation and to work with others to make changes as soon as possible. Our response to the global pandemic has demonstrated that rapid change is possible and there should be no returning to normal where new approaches to care and treatment have worked. 
As we all know, there is no one solution to the issues surrounding problem substance use. But this is where our courage to debate and deliver what works is crucial, so that we get to a position without delay where there is a range of responsive quality services and approaches to tackle this emergency head on. And we must promote the right route to reduce harm and provide recovery for each individual, nothing less than the right treatment at the right time. And our services need to stick with people and we need to reach out to people wherever they are. And everything we say and do must lead to a better informed debate that knocks down stigma and knocks down the obstacles to change and leads to better life chances for those who most require support. We need to provide dignity, respect, compassion and hope. Thank you very much and I look forward to hearing about the outcomes of your important event tonight. Thank you. Hello, Darren, Anne-Marie and Peter. Thanks very much for joining us on this session. It would be really extremely useful for our audience to have a quick overview of how fit for purpose the overall support structure in Scotland is for those with lived experience. So, Anne-Marie, would you like to have a little stab at that first? Canistic at best. Um, lived experience is not valued or acknowledged in a way that I see recognised in other parts of the UK or even other parts of Europe. So from a structural point of view and from a system point of view, it's still very tokenistic. And, you know, most people with lived experience are getting a wee pat in the head or a very steered voice. Yeah, it's, it's a really strange one because, you know, obviously in Scotland we have such a higher drug death rate than the rest of the UK. So the, the actual systems that are in place in, in the rest of the UK, I believe, are better than what they are in Scotland. Although if you look at it from a policy viewpoint in terms of the UK current policies, the policies in Scotland are driven towards more a health response, you know, than the UK government. But simple things like point of contact in terms of the support services, you know, with through organisations like Change Grow Live, We Are With You that are operating south of the border, if somebody turns up to those organisations, they can get assessed if they're using street drugs and get onto a prescription automatically straight away. Whereas if they turn up to these services in Glasgow or Edinburgh, they get assessed, they have to wait, they get sent to the NHS for a further assessment. And then the NHS are so risk adverse in their prescribing procedures that it sometimes doesn't even manage the illicit drug use to the point where they can stop using illicit substances. Um, so yeah, our support systems in Scotland are, are certainly lacking in, in terms of uh, delivery and also in terms of you know the, the impact that people who have personal experience of drug use have on the decisions that are made. Policy without lived experience is like a toilet without a system you know <laughs> like every now and then you have to flush away the crap you know and, and in public policy the crap is all of the circular often baseless assumptions that develop among sections of the population who have no direct experience of the issues over which they uh, preside. So historically, lived experience has functioned as a, as a, a way to offset that. You know, if you look at the, the beverage report, uh, it, it 
part of the basis of that was hundreds of interviews conducted in the 1930s by the state to investigate the long-term impact of unemployment. And that's what partly informed the very specific tailored welfare system that emerged from that. We've moved away from that and we've moved more to a kind of neoliberal form of lived experience, which is about wheeling out one media-friendly person to talk about their subjective, highly revised interpretation of what they think has happened, which never really deals with systemic contextual factors. And this then authenticates organisations in the eyes of the power structure who are then furnished with more and more money and more and more funding for producing more and more failure. We've, we've got five organisations that play a significant role in drug policy. Um, we've got the UK government, the Scottish government, local authorities, the Scottish Health Service and the wider medical and mental health services, and finally the police and justice system. Um, taking each in turn, if we can, I'd like you to kind of explain how those with lived experience are involved in those areas and what changes you'd like to see. Um, Darren, is it okay if we start with you and, and would you mind looking at the um, Scottish government? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think that the, the Scottish government, perhaps more so than the UK government, has at least attempted to address issues of proximity, low proximity, i.e. the further a decision maker is from the phenomenon or the event that's occurring, the less likely that they are going to develop the vital kernels of information that better inform their view of what's happening. And so if you look at the care review, for example, this was a this was an attempt to draw a line under our very patchy care system. It's not really a system. It's lots of different systems all clogged together. There's no continuity between the systems. What's allowed in one local authority is not allowed in the other. Kinship carers were all receiving different amounts of money and all being underpaid for the service that they provide when can, 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 compared to foster carers. And so the care review attempted to address lots of different aspects of the care system by placing people with care experience uh, at the very heart of the, the discussion. Now, whatever the recommendations of that are and however they're implemented is a different issue. But, you know, there has been an attempt there to recognise, not just because of the moral issue or because of the optics of not having lived experience, but because of the very practical level of knowledge that people who have witnessed something and experienced something up as close as you can possibly be bring to social policy formation and analysis. I think that we need to start moving in that direction when it comes to drug policy across all of the different areas, because obviously we all represent our own sandbox in terms of recovery movement, harm reduction, the broader poverty, social exclusion issues, criminal justice, and so on and so forth. But I think, you, you know, you need that comprehensive overview of how it all pieces together so that we can actually look at replumbing the entire system gradually and hope in the hope that it would produce a, a better output for everybody. Policing and criminal justice system's not really changed, I think, from... You know, my time as a street-level drug user, I remember being arrested for simply how, how I looked, you know, and then thrown in a, in a police cell, you know, and kept in and up to court and, you know, placed on uh, probation orders, community service orders, um, periods of time in prison. And it's not really changed, you know, if we look at the criminal justice system now, you know, one in four people who are currently sitting within UK prison, UK 
prisons are in there for street level drug use. You know, we're not talking about people who are involved in the concern of supply substances. We're talking about purely street level drug use. And it's absolutely insane. You know, the criminal justice system is still geared towards that. And it's unfortunate in Scotland, you know, we, that we recognise this as a health issue and the Scottish government recognise it as a health issue. But ultimately, when we've got the Misuse of Drugs Act, which is 50 years old on the 27th of May this year, um, still determining how police are, uh, uh, have to actually uh, police the situation in terms of drug use. There's nothing that, that the Scottish government at this point can really do to change that. Um, and that lies out with the hands of the Scottish government, as we've found out in recent months through you know, the, the, the Lord Advocate's inability to, to address things like uh, overdose prevention facilities, you know, which is just a basic form of harm reduction, um, but lies within his power as the senior Scottish law officer. So the, the criminal justice system, you know, we talk about things like smart smart justice, we talk about things like um, diverting people from prison sentences into uh, treatment and rehabilitation services, but it's just not happening at the moment. I regularly see people walking out of prison, coming into Glasgow City Centre to, to, to score drugs and coming in injecting heroin or cocaine in, in, in my facility. How do you feel the UK government treats those with lived experiences and in relation to how we're how we're doing that in Scotland at the moment? I said, well, that's the, that's the paradox I think I've already spoke about a couple of times. You know, the UK government are all still for criminalising um, drug users. You know, they're for they they believe that breaking up county li county lines and supply chains is actually going to uh, you know impact the the overall crisis that we've got. I mean, this crisis, we often think about it just as a Scottish crisis, I think, because of our drug drug death levels being so much higher than the rest of the UK. But if we add it up and we look at the UK as a whole, there's 16 people on average dying across the UK on a daily basis from preventable drug-related deaths. Um, so it's proven, it's been proven for generations now, you know, like 50 years this Misuse of Drugs Act's been in place, been trying to do the same thing over and over and over, and it's not working, but it still sits with the demographic and the narrative of the war on drugs that's been inflicted on us since 1970, 1971, since President Nixon stood up and said, we need an all-out offensive war on drugs. That's the narrative that has been fed into our heads for all those years. Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher just saying those drugs are bad. Drugs are not going away. That's the simple reality of it. We need to re-identify and re um, you know, we, we need a complete overhaul of how we're dealing with this issue. You know, it needs to change. And the the Tory narrative and their voter base still believe the narrative that's been fed to them for generations that drugs are bad. Get everybody off drugs, that's the solution. And it's clearly not. If you look at countries that have had drug death rates that are that are as high now as what Scotland's got with massive HIV infections and outbreaks and hepatitis C running riot, what they've done is they've introduced a safe supply of prescription medication to get people off of illicit substances to keep people safe and protected and then offer people residential rehab, pathways to social psychological support, health and welfare, These all these wraparound services that need to be included. Everything needs to come together. We need the best harm reduction and the best social 
economic policies to drive change for the future. We do need whole system radical change. There's no doubt about that. We have to remember that the root causes here, for the most part, people suffering from addiction. It's, we're talking about poverty and despair and inequality. So our services as they currently stand are not fit for purpose. There's no doubt in my mind about that. They often work in isolation, conflict and competition with each other, which is incredible. And what we call treatment in the UK is actually harm reduction interventions, which are extremely valuable, but they're not treatment. Um, they can prevent overdose, they, uh, but it's a, not a long-term treatment to overcome addiction. It's merely managing symptoms. And, you know, I wouldn't advocate for money to be taken away from any of these HR interventions, such as methadone or anti-abuse or heroin-assisted treatment or drug consumption rooms, safe injecting facilities. Uh, what we would advocate for, though, is the same type of investment into helping us get off drugs um, and, uh, you know, and alcohol, for instance. So, you know, we've got a massive problem in Scotland in particular with alcohol, but, but we very rarely hear about it. Since lockdown over, you know, sales have went up by almost 40%. You know, so there, there's a massive imbalance in not only in how we invest in so-called treatment services, but just the, our collective denial around how big, the problem actually is. So for us, it's not enough focus, it's not enough to just focus, sorry, on um, helping people stay alive. Um, there's so much more available. As people in recovery, we're capable of so much more if we're supported to get well. And to front the whole, you know, to front load the whole system, we only harm reduction initiatives um, as an imbalance that is starting to be addressed in Scotland after two decades of uh, uh, austerity and, and, and funding and services being um, degraded and investment being pulled. So I, I believe it's actually morally wrong not to help us end our own suffering. Uh, and it's morally wrong to not help us get well. Uh, Darren, Peter, do you have any views um, on treatment and intervention? Um, I mean, my, my experience uh, in the past and I know that things have changed slightly. My my own drug use accelerated when Valium and Diazepam and all that was still readily available at the GP. So all you had to do was go in and say the right things and, and play the right mood music and you would get quite a substantial prescription of drugs. Um, because at that time, a lot of health professionals uh, were only able to diagnose the symptoms that you were presenting. And I was turning up, hungover, depressed, talking about hallucinating, hearing voices, and then being sent down a rabbit hole uh, with an entourage of mental health professionals who couldn't identify that the central problem that I was dealing with was the corrosive mental, physical, and spiritual effects of inebriation on a daily basis. And, and actually for me, and this is just my experience, I was given drinking diaries, I was given ant abuse, I've done non-residential treatment, I've done residential treatment. And actually the thing that really got my head in the game was just being around other people who had solved the addiction problem um, by abstaining from drugs 
and and building certain principles into their life that allowed them to to clear the emotional cache of resentment and anger and frustration that can build up over time that can sometimes then create the conditions for you to think having a drink or a drug is a good idea. Now, that was my experience. And all, all I would like to see is that sort of recovery is prominently promoted and pursued as all the others, you know, because I think most people understand harm reduction. Everybody in Scotland knows what methadone is. Nobody really would know what you meant if you said abstinence-based recovery. And I think for me, it's important to sort of lay all the tools out on the table and then people can find out for themselves what works for them at what time. Because I think just now services generally, and I've heard this countless times and it's been my experience as well, often because of the lack of accountability and the great sway that certain individuals hold within the sector, whether it's at the level of the front facing or whether it's managerial, People project their biases and prejudices about certain types of recovery onto people. So if I go into a place and I'm rattling, somebody takes a look at me because of the way I sound, because of the way I dress, and they decide I'm not the sort of person who can get abstinent. They decide that my life is better if I just do, you know, a 15-year stretch on some other drug. And, and then I embark on that course of treatment because I have no frame of reference for what's available. I have no choice. I'm not empowered in any way. I don't understand the language of officialdom. I'm not even aware that I'm being prejudged. Then, you know, it, it sort of it, it recontextualizes what's on offer right now as something else entirely, which is a real minefield uh, and lack of consistency across different uh, areas and services in between different uh, types of treatment. Aaron's absolutely right. Um, what, what we have is, you know, this false dichotomy of harm reduction versus abstinence, and it's, it's dominated our field for as long as I've worked in it, which is nearly 20 years, you know, and and people become very entrenched in one camp or the other. And, it, and you know, and that's human nature to do that, you know, to have a belief system that's, well, I believe in harm reduction and I believe in abstinence. And what Darren's pointing to there is not just a progressive middle ground, but it's a humane person-centred approach whereby people have access to both all the harm reduction interventions that could be available, including safe injecting facilities. But also, you know, we, we know from the research that the majority of people who become overwhelmed with substance use or, or other behavioural addictions have, have experienced extreme trauma. So in order to heal that, and if people want to get abstinent and stay abstinent, there's a tremendous amount of perseverance, tenacity, and, you know, just skills required that often involved more often than not involve a uh, really in-depth trauma-informed care and there's there's very few places at the moment but i know we're, we're making headway and a investing in in residential rehab but there's very few places on offer that those that type of care and that type of support uh, and that type of treatment is currently not that available in scotland but we have to be offering all of those pathways to recovery and not punishing people if they fail or if they get, you know, if they get stuck on one, you know, to, to allow them to choose what's right for them and to give them the choice and make sure that, that they are 
they are aware of the different pathways that might help them. Great. And Peter, how do you feel about that choice that's available? Yeah, I think there should be choice available and people should be presented with multiple sort of opportunities and pathways and, and be able to make informed decisions based upon their own experience. You know, that's what I did. You know, I, I was told, you know, I remember my mum coming to visit me in Young Offenders Institution at the age of 16, you know, looking at a sentence thinking, crying across the table saying you need to change you're a drug addict you're an, an alcoholic you know i mean you need to do this you need to do that and people told me that for years you know that i needed to do x y and z and, and you know and it was all driven towards back then it was all driven towards you know me getting off drugs you know that's what my mum thought it was the solution that's what the the doctors and the the, the the people that worked in the psychiatric ward that I would sign myself into every six months for a, another dry out you know to go and get Valium and Librium and you know and, and I think you know we do have this sort of the ongoing sort of um, fight in Scotland to just get basic choices for people you know I mean that's that's the problem that we don't have I mean we we often talk about like um, harm reduction we simply do not have the most basic harm reduction in Scotland. We don't have it. I mean, we've got space for 20 people currently on heroin-assisted treatment in a country that has the highest drug death rates per head of population in the world. We've not got any safer consumption facilities apart from an ambulance that's parked in Glasgow for 23 hours a week. You know, I mean, it's just not available. Benzodiazepines, which are running right through the country, Darren spoke about them. In my day, I could go to the doctor and get enough benzos to keep me stable. You know, I wouldn't need to go looking for street drugs. If I was out there injecting heroin and crack cocaine in my groin, begging for spare change like I was 20 odd years ago just now, I'd be dead because I'd be out there using handfuls of street Valium, but nobody knows what's in them. Over 800 deaths in 2019 were linked directly to illicit benzodiazepines. And if somebody goes to the doctor or goes to the NHS and says, look, I need 80 milligrams of Valium, I'm taking handfuls of street ones, 80 milligrams will be enough to stop me doing that, to keep me in a little bit of place of safety, they'll just get told, no, it's that simple. You're just not getting that. You know what I mean? You're not getting it. If we have a range of choices available across the board, that's the only thing that's really going to change our drug death crisis. I think, I think it's interesting as well, isn't it, that when we think about drug treatment, we often think of, you know, what's described as the skid row addict or alcoholic, you know, so somebody who's completely on their arse. And that's traditionally who, you know, our drug treatment services or alcohol treatment services treat in inverted commas but i think if we if we think about scotland as a whole you know and if we really do want to change our structures and our systems to deliver something of use and of value we have to think about the you know hundreds of thousands of other people who are functioning you know they're not scheduled but they're, they're leading lives of quiet desperation you know we're talking about social workers here, teachers, policemen, nurses who are addicts and alcoholics, but because your services are so geared towards the absolute crisis and centre of someone who's at their absolute rock bottom, those people 
aren't going to go anywhere near our services as they currently stand. And, and actually, I would argue that that section of society who is leading that life of quiet desperation, completely addicted to painkillers or alcohol or other drugs, uh, they've got nowhere to go within our current treatment system because they're, they're just, in fact, yeah. I'm, we're going to be burying a friend of mine recently who had her own business and she was told categorically by the community addiction team, team that they couldn't do anything for her because she looked great and she had her own business, but she couldn't afford to go to private rehab. You know, she was doing well, but she wasn't doing well enough to go to rehab. So I, I think there's a bigger, a wider conversation here about, you know, Scotland's uh, cultural penchant for oblivion. You know, and yeah. how, how naturally that, that how acceptable that is. And I, I think, just to add quickly, that speaks to a broader issue which you'll find in uh, along mental health lines, which you'll find uh, when it comes to homelessness. And obviously there's a, a lot of interplay between those and the drug issue. And this is the high threshold to be regarded as in a crisis. So what the government does is it creates a bottleneck where people go and ask for help and they get pathed off and they get diverted around different services or they have to deal with, you know, overwhelmed uh, benefits agencies and that whole rabbit hole. And then they get to a point where they try and hang themselves from a lamppost uh, or they slit their wrists or they jump in a river or they overdose and then suddenly the system becomes ready to deal with them. And that's extremely more costly it's far more dangerous, and it, and it, and it just basically it, it means you you have to be literally on death's door, as Anne Marie's indicated, before you'll be taken seriously, and that's just not a sophisticated way to manage these kind of issues. I was working with a guy last just at the start of lockdown. There, he was begging throughout lockdown outside Tesco's. All the way through the first lockdown, I was going up, I was, you know, taking him bits and pieces, dropping stuff off to him, trying to get him connected into the service. He was smoking heroin, a previous injector of heroin. He could not even get an assessment. They said he was not high enough risk to get an assessment. The actual words of the senior manager was, we're only assessing people who are pregnant or those that are injecting in their necks or their groins. And I'm saying, okay, so you're telling me that this guy has to go away and use drugs much more dangerously just to get an assessment to get on methadone, just for an assessment. And that's the issue of the problem. Most people, when they first turn up at a service, they first turn up for help and support, the first initial help and support that they ask for that or that they want, certainly in my experience and the people that I'm working with, as a prescription to stop using street drugs. And when they're told no, and they're sent away without getting on a prescription, the chance to engage with them and the chance to offer them things like residential rehab later on down the line is gone, because most often they may die or they'll just not come back. And that's why only 40% or less people in Scotland currently sit in any form of treatment whatsoever, compared yeah. to over 60% in England and Wales. We had a, a drug worker from the Glasgow addiction team get in touch with us this week about two new clients who had came forward. One was a man who worked in the rigs um, and has a, an opiate addiction. One was a young woman who worked as an administrator in a, a local office who had a painkiller addiction. They were both asking for detoxes, not rehab, 
Um, and they were both offered methadone. When they said that they didn't want to take methadone, the worker following the new standards within her team said, you know, well, we, you know, detox can happen. It can happen immediately. There's a long waiting list for detox. But if you're refusing methadone, we may have to get in touch with the DVLA about your driving licence and social work about your children to both this man and women completely separate. Both of them functioning, both of them employed, you know, just looking for help to detox and uh, they were threatened. So that goes back to the point about only 40% of people currently in Scotland who need help are in treatment. And that's one of the reasons why we've got, you know, much higher death rates than, than, than England, for, you know. Not only can you rock up at your local drug treatment service at Change Grow Live in particular and get prescribed something or enter a detox on the same day. I mean, I mean, it's just it's laughable that we're we're stuck in the Stone Age. And what's more worrying though in Scotland is like whenever you 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 challenge anybody about this or you you say to the, the services, you're not doing enough job. They see it as a personal criticism. They don't see it as a way to improve. And they they react, like if, or if you say, like, you can't leave someone on methadone for 15 years or, or 20 years or 25 years, as in some cases, they see it as a, you're, you're criticising the methadone user rather than mm. the methadone programme, you know? Like, it, it's like this complete unwillingness to admit that we're not doing something right and that we need to change and that if nothing changes, nothing changes. And there's this real pushback around change in Scotland. It's, it's like, you know, and the services themselves working in isolation and conflict and competition with each other and the whole mentality being a closed shop. And, and, I, and I can say that, I can compare that to other countries in the UK where that just isn't the case, you know, and that there's, there's something quite sick and toxic about Scottish societies how, how it views addiction and and how you know it, it's like the guys and girls who are approaching services are the canaries in the mine as far as i'm concerned i think we've got a massive cultural problem uh, a massive societal problem uh, not just with alcohol or other drugs certainly with gambling porn and you know everything else that can give you something you know something to feel good for a few seconds but um, yeah, I think there's a wider conversation to be have around around this, a much wider cultural conversation. There's a few things to pick up on there. Um, would it be fair to say that there's there's agreement about the need for more and earlier intervention? Yeah, absolutely. Across the board. Is that yeah. covered in any way in the, um, uh, the rights, respect and recovery alcohol and drug treatment strategy that the Scottish Government released in 2018? Or was that a much more of a narrower focus on the definition of uh, drug use and drug harm? I think, I think rights, respect and recovery is brilliant in terms of rhetoric. It probably says all of that and more, but there's a mass gap between policy and practice, as we all know. Even in 2009, we saw the road to recovery being first being implemented, and we saw that uh, Darren used the plumbing analogy there. And what, what they described in the road to recovery was to turn that field of harm reduction workers and a recovery champions overnight, you know. So what that meant was to turn a field of plumbers and engineers overnight. And it was always going to fail. 
because they never retrained the workforce. They never changed the culture within the workforce. The culture currently within the workforce is that people people need to manage their symptoms and they need to get um, stabilised. That's the culture, which which in itself isn't a bad thing. But that's when when it when the culture forgets that you can recover, or when the culture of addiction treatment never sees anybody who recovers, they, they lose hope. So our culturally, our treatment system is stuck in the culture of addiction and, and the culture of recovery is regarded as something that happens over there and that it's none of our business um, and that we, do, we don't need to even be bothered with that because our job is to manage the symptoms of addiction rather than help people come out of addiction. So have you got any thoughts on this kind of cultural importance around addiction and treatment of addiction? Of addiction? Whether you're looking at suicide, whether you're looking at mental health, whether you're looking at alcoholism or homelessness, there are certain myths at the level of pub, uh, level of public opinion, which are are actually implanted there by by politicians who either don't know what they're talking about or who are deliberately trying to cultivate inaccurate conceptions of what social problems truly entail. If you look at how politicians' rhetoric at the beginning of this pandemic shifted from constant individualism, adversarialism, political tribalism, emphasising differences, stoking fear about immigrants and all of the rest of it, to suddenly this communitarian rhetoric, this looking on your neighbour rhetoric, for a few weeks at the start of 2020, we felt like we were living in a, in a sufficiently kinder society. A million people signed up to become volunteers in a matter of days. We became preoccupied by how people around us were doing. Our whole behaviours, our mannerisms, our attitudes to the virus, uh, our conception of the virus, our understanding of it, our sense of spatial awareness when we went outside, all changed just because politicians kept repeating a message over and over. So it, it shows that there's a, a link between the rhetoric that politicians deploy and the subsequent attitudes and behaviours that arise within the population at large. And unfortunately, it's going to be a long time before we see a politician going on television every day and saying pretty much every homeless person you see or drug addict you see is a victim of, of child abuse and neglect. People who are on drugs are suffering from a, a condition of mind and body, which means that at a certain point, they become powerless over the choice to use and they select from a narrow range of choices that most people can't even conceive of. If politicians came on TV and told the truth about all those things and applied the science to all those things, as they have done with COVID-19 uh, and also deployed the sufficient financial resources, you could fundamentally reverse the polarity of this society within a decade. It's just that the will is not there, the knowledge is not there, um, and so the public, the public fall back on the sense of powerlessness and resentment that they feel when they're confronted by homeless people all the time, and they're confronted by drug addicts all the time. They become angry because they can't do anything about it. So then a natural sort of explanation for them is that person's annoying, get that person to fuck, fuck that person. But it doesn't begin like that. It doesn't begin like that. It begins with a sense of, if I could help this person, I would, but I can't. Sighting them everywhere is just irritating the shit out of me. And just picking up on that, you know, you know, Scotland's in a drug death catastrophe at the moment, you know, and with the so-called street valium. 
And, and if, I, if you look at where those deaths are occurring, they're occurring in our poorest communities. So what is it that's happening in those poor communities that people think it, it's, you know, it's, it's better to take your chances with a couple of flu valium that might kill me than what, what is it that's driving people to that despair that they're willing to play Russian roulette with a couple of street valium? You know, what is mm. it that's so terrible about people's lives? And if we're asking politicians to do something, that's what we should be asking them to think about. What is it about what's happening in our poorest communities? How can we tap into finding out what that despair is about and how can we actually help change that? That people are willing to play Russian roulette just to get out their own heads. What is that's so desperate? What is it that's so bad? Um, that we're willing to die. Darren, you mentioned that um, you, you believe that people want to help. Um, Peter and Anne-Marie, uh, Peter first, could you think what the people who are watching this section uh, can do to help? Can you think of any kind of like direct calls to action for people who have been motivated by the conversation so far? Question, like from our everyday sort of perspective, what is it that people can actually do? You know, people, I think, question their, their, their motives and their morality around this type of stuff regularly, you know, like, and especially having, you know, my own personal experience, you know, quite chaotic drug use, you know, and, and having spoken to my family about that, you know, and asked them how they are and having become a parent myself, you know, with two young kids, that's only really when I started to think about how, you know, that, that, that affected those around me, you know, and how I really started to be able to, like, walk in other people's shoes and stuff. So it's a difficult one. I mean, it's a, for me, it's always about just having these conversations with your friends and your family around you. You know, like, there is, there's links out there. There's organisations like uh, Transform Drug Policy Foundation, Release Drugs, Anyone's Child, you know, who have some really great campaigns going on, activist campaigns where you can email your MSPs, email your MPs, ask them if they support real drug policy reform. Um, because when, when we talk about the bigger, wider changes across society for generations to come, you know, it's about proper regulation, you know, it's about taking away the, 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 the chaos, the underlying chaos, and about investment in our, in our local communities, you know, like like we've all spoken about and I think everybody sort of starts to recognise and understand people that primarily die and come from socially economic deprived areas, you know, where they've not had opportunities growing up, you know, where they have suffered. Sometimes, you know, we talk about these like real extreme levels of trauma like um, child abuse or, you know, being physically uh, beaten up you know, where trauma can be a lot more, you know, a lot more just underlying in terms of not having enough to eat, you know what I mean? Not being dressed properly, going to school, you know, not having eating in your house, you know, these simple little things that, that create this, like, toxic environment to grow up in. Um, so, yeah, wider drug policy reform is definitely where I sit within this, you know, like, we, we can do what we can now to support people right now, but for the generations to come, um, we need to see decriminalisation of drug use. We need to see it properly treated as a health issue where people are supported into treatment. Um, and that's why I'm a, I'm a major advocate of harm reduction because people can't recover if they're dead. It's that simple. One of the things about activist communities and people who mean to do good things is that they often come at things with a sense of confidence because they've already been involved in other campaigns and they've been active and participated. 
But unfortunately, sometimes what can happen is, you know, you have a big influx of people who have become interested in an issue. And what they do is they unintentionally try to install their own hierarchy within a thing or create their own thing within a thing that then becomes another thing to compete with all the pre-existing things. The best thing you can do is donate money to the campaigns that Peter's outlined, to Anne-Marie's charity. Go and find there's a broad spread of organisations out there. You can donate money. You can go and offer to be a volunteer, helping out, doing logistical things. And this is a great opportunity, not only to demonstrate humility in the face of an issue evidently you, you don't quite have your head wrapped around yet, but also a very practical way to lighten the load for the people who have been on this campaign for a decade straight, some some even more than that. It's important to kind of basically go and ask those people, what do I need to do? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, that, and that's pretty straightforward. I think that's a simple answer. Yeah, definitely, you know, look at Transform's website, come and see Faces and Voices at Recovery UK's website. Help us build an army of advocates. Help Favour UK and Favour Scotland build an army of advocates to help people get access to the different types of treatment that might help them. Uh, we're specifically looking for people to help us write bids to build an army of advocates. Um, I, I would say on a personal level, to talk about our difficulties more, you know, to talk about our dad who had alcoholism or yeah. our sister who's suffering or, you know, to talk about our own struggles with substance use or gambling or porn or shopping, whatever it is. And to talk about, you know, those and that, that kind of stuff in an open and honest way. So, is, you know, we don't have to get to the point where... We're in absolute crisis, you know, we can reach out for help as individuals and we can offer support when, you know, when we see a loved one who's maybe, maybe starting to rely or over rely on a substance or a behaviour, we can step in and say, I'm here, you know, I'm here for you if you need to be connected. And, it, you know, by being vulnerable like that with each other, sharing our weaknesses and sharing our reliances or our dependencies with people who love us or the people that care about us is you know that vulnerability can actually prevent the need to be using whatever the substance is if the minute we reach out for help we get relief so you know if we can be a wee bit more open to talk about our own difficulties with our friends and with our families, that that will certainly have a ripple effect on the rest of society. And, and that's really powerful, Anne-Marie, because everyone can certainly do that, and there's not really many barriers to doing that. Anne-Marie, Peter, Darren, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it, and that's been a, a fantastic session. Thank you very much. I'd now like to welcome Ronnie Cowan, who is our MP for um, Inverclyde to the session and I'm going to ask the first question and I'd like to know as an MP, Ronnie, could you tell us how UK legislation is preventing drug uh, policy progress in Scotland? The UK legislation is completely entrenched in the idea that any drug use is a crime and therefore the whole issue, everything that then cascades off of the use of drugs is a criminal aspect to it and therefore it's all handled through the Home Office. So they're, they're coming at it entirely from the wrong angle. They don't see it as a health issue. We we'll sort of touch upon that to a degree. But first and foremost, it's prosecute people, hang them high, hang them out to dry, crack down the county lines, or break, break down doors and take big drug halls, and this is what we're doing to fight it. And they've never come to 
terms of the fact that they're not going to place within days, if not hours, and they're not going to win a war. You'll you you never race your way out of a drug war. They've never come to terms with that. So quite honestly, how they would handle problems of addiction and lots of support services we've put in place, they're not even close to that, because that's not what they see as being the issue. They see it like criminals and how do we prosecute criminals. Do you think we can truly solve drug crises without fundamentally moving to a further society? Is <laughs> the short answer that? No. Our society is completely screwed when it comes to this. We have the society which has ostracised and demonised people, and they're those people. They're almost just peripheral vision. They're just, just sort of out of sight. They're, it's like a different world. We don't engage with them. You know, and we've had this attitude towards people with problematic drug use, even gambling, harm, and addiction in general. But for problem with drugs, you've had it. Well, certainly since 1971, Misuse of Drugs Act. Before that, we had a different system in the UK. We had the British system. And it was much more tolerant about drug use in general. But over since the 50 years of the Drug Act, drug act we've managed to completely ostracise people, criminalise them, uh, and, and, and almost make them inhuman in the same way as history has shown us. If you, if you take the humanity of people, then you can treat them any way you like. And that's what we seem to have done to, to people who are suffering from, from, from drug abuse. And society has got to change its attitude or we'll continue to treat people in that way because that's how we continue to see them. Like, we don't want to see them. We want to walk by them in the street. We don't want them living next door to us. Now, I get that. So having somebody who's abusing drugs living next door can be a pain in the neck. Of course that is. But you're either seeing a criminal or you're a person with a health issue which needs addressed. If you continue to as a criminal, you're never going to solve the problem. Do you think then, uh, thinking back to what Anne-Marie said earlier on, that maybe it might help people to understand that this is not just an issue for people who are on schedule, it's also an issue for people who are functioning in society as well? There's certainly a huge denial in society about the, the middle class drug addiction. And it's people who are addicted to painkillers or, or Valium or, or alcohol even, and it can be contained. Money helps contain that. It's less, it's less visual if you've got money. So, so that the twitching curtain type thing of put along the road, you know, type thing. That's a whole area we don't really delve into because, again, it's, it's hidden from day-to-day -day life. When we see people injecting drugs in alleys and stuff like that, if we want to see people injecting drugs in alleys, then we, we, we can see the person you've Hopefully we can see a person with a serious health problem who needs something done about it. But if it's somebody living at home, particularly during COVID, because of alcohol, it's going up, I think I said 40%, you know. Yeah. So people are sitting on the drinking more, but they're not, I see, they're not in your face. So it's very easy to turn your back to that and just go and live your own life. And unless we've seen in the past people with serious addiction problems battering down doors to try and get help, trying to get support, if you're just containing it within your own house, no one's going to come help. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, that statistic from Anne-Marie about drinking. And um, it, it seems obvious to me that when um, agency and um, loneliness are injected, loss of agency and loneliness are injected into people's lives in the way that they have been with COVID-19, then there is a search for self-medication. Um, but I've got another question from the audience here as well. Um, is... What are the next steps for taking drug policy reform forward? Do you think, um, probably from, from your perspective, but maybe also from the Scottish Government perspective as well? Fundamentally, drug policy sits at Westminster. 
Yeah, that's the deal. If you want to, if you want to seriously address all the issues, then Westminster has to start first, first basic thing. See, this is not a criminal justice. This is a health problem. Chuck over the wall into the health department. And then see the people in the health department. What do you want to do? What can you do to put in health and support for people who are going through this? And forget the criminal justice act. Forget, forget the criminal aspect of this thing. If you want to go there, stop arresting people for personal possession. Decriminalise. Legalise. You know, there's lots of things we can do. None of that's going to happen until the attitude changes. And right now in the home office we've got Pretty Patel, uh, who just loves calling in the police force. That's our attitude. Until that changes, until that attitude changes, there's very little we can do. In fact, I don't want to be overly political with this. But right now we've got a majority Conservative and Unionist government, a majority of 80. So they can do anything they want to do. They don't want to do anything with drug policy at all. We, we saw basic, simple things which they could do. We've got, we've got a problem with medical cannabis. When you see medical cannabis, they hear cannabis and they don't hear medicine. Now, we could be in a situation where we could change the law there and provide medical cannabis for children with epilepsy. It's a very, very simple thing to do. Right now, we're importing it from the Netherlands. That ran out and left the EU. We've now extended that to the 1st of July. So what are they going to do after the 1st of July? They could change the law and make that available, but they just simply don't. They've not engaged in this discussion at any level whatsoever. I mean, Kit, Mul Kit uh, Mulhouse is the, the minister responsible for this. And I challenged them all about drug consumption rooms. I said, what are you doing with DCRs? And Boris Johnson hasn't got a clue. He, he throws it to Kit. Kit contacts me and says, oh, the usual standard answer is that I cannot condone drug use. And I, I tried to explain to what a DCR is, and they don't get it. So I've arranged a meeting between Kit, me, and Ruth Dreyfus. So hopefully he will listen to Ruth Dreyfus when she explains to him what a DCR is and how effective they were in Switzerland. So what we've got to do and answer your question is, we just got to keep on working in the background because if we put a vote, we'll lose it. We're going to keep on working in the background and educate the people at the very top of the decision-making process. If you can change one of them, suddenly things start happening. I mean, 650 MPs and we all vote. But it's controlled, really, by a handful of people within the cabinet and then control the cabinet and then control the, the front bench spokespeople and then control the backbenchers. If you can get the right person in the right place, then you can change practically anything. But right now, I'm hand in heart, I have to say, the people I see sitting in the Home Office right now are not engaging at all. I'm hoping when we sit there with Kitten and explain to what a DCR actually is, that he can then go back to Boris Johnson and say, well, you know what? This wouldn't do any harm to our society. In fact, it might do some good. So that's all as APs we can currently do, because we cannot drive through legislation because they're, they're not engaged with that at all. The Scottish Parliament is limited to what it can do. What it can do is look at the health, and, the, the health aspect of it and, and try and improve services, which I genuinely believe that we're now trying to do and um, put in the right support services, help people who, who want to come through a methadone project, help those who want to go through absence, whether it's within their community or on a, on a, on a, a rehab bed type thing, because there's no one there's no one magic path that people walk out of this. So they have to have lots of different options because it's such a complex problem in the first place. But the Scottish government can certainly look after that. And I genuinely believe they're going to make moves towards doing that. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking that perhaps you need a proxy um, of someone who has had drug addiction, who's been functioning and perhaps comes from quite a, a wealthy background. That, that, that might be perhaps a, um, that might help 
situation. I've got to tell you, that's we've got plenty of those people in Parliament. Believe you me, there are plenty of people yeah. in Parliament who have used drugs. And in the House of Lords, I, can, I openly talk to two or three <coughs> lords who will say, you know, I had a cocaine habit and I've come through and so on. And they're very active in drug policy reform. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the House of Lords. There's plenty of people in there who born a silver spoon in their mouth, found their way into drug addiction, uh, and do understand it. It's just that right now they're not in the cabinet. Is, is there a country that you think we should aspire to in terms of drug policy? There's certainly lots of countries we can look at and say that would work for us, and we can cherry-pick solutions. Uh, I mean, Switzerland have done great things, uh, Uruguay have done great things, Portugal have done great things. You can't not say just do everything they've done and apply to Scotland. It's a different society, a different attitude. But you can have a long, hard look at what they've done in terms of decriminalising DCRs, hat units, and say, you know, that would, oh, that would either work exactly as it is in Scotland, or we can take that and remodel it slightly. There's lots of good examples out there as to what we could be doing. The other question I've got here, and I'd like to add to that as well, is how can we raise awareness of the harm that the current UK drugs policy is doing to Scots? I'd, I'd like to add on something to that, that something I heard about in the press that alarmed me a great deal was when Peter Crycant was taking his ambulance out, there was, uh, I was hearing about young medics possibly being prosecuted. So there's a couple of questions in there, Peter and Ronnie. So how do we raise awareness of the harm that the current UK drugs policy is doing to Scots first? I'm afraid it's a bit of a hackneyed answer, but it's about conversations like this. The more people who get behind it, I had a tune this afternoon by a guy, he said, I see you're doing that thing again, you're talking about drugs again, Ronnie. Well, that's fine, but what do we do about gambling harm? Because I'm also involved in a, a group who are trying to reform the Gambling Act. And he said, drugs is way ahead of this in the, in the amount of tension they get. And he's absolutely right. Gambling harm gets very little coverage, but maybe three, four years ago, drugs wasn't getting that attention either. Now, three or four years is a long, long time for, for many people in this situation. I get that. A week, a day can be a long time, but we've just got to keep on plugging away because we have made a lot of progress. It might not look like it, but we have made a lot of progress, and more and more people are coming to this conversation. A lot of people I have I've talked to, and I, when they first come to me, I think, oh, this, this is going to be a tough conversation. Knowing them, knowing their background, knowing who they are, trying to say well, we should decriminalise this or or, or 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 whatever, and it's not hard conversation at all. They they already get it, and I'm really quite surprised. And and, and I think the public get it far more than, than politicians do. Uh, going back a few years, we'd probably say talking about drugs and drug reform was never going to be a vote winner. Politicians just didn't touch it at all. I was the first MP to bring a debate to Westminster on drug consumption rooms. Now, they weren't new. They just never thought to talk about it before. So politicians, I think, are behind the curve in this, and the public are actually stepping up and are getting more involved in this and have a better understanding of it. So really, it's about public educating the members of Parliament. And if you want to, my fellow MPs will hate me for this, but tough, you want to write to your MP, and you want to ask them, don't, don't do it in standard letters. Because I opened up my email, like a standard, that's very interesting. Then you get two, three, thirty, forty, things. It's a standard letter. All someone's done is sign up to a protest site. So they get a standard response. If you write a much shorter letter to me, which I'm going to read, and you say to me, you know, what do you know about this? What have you done about it? What are you going to do about it? And challenge them on those points. <clears throat> and then just as up to me to take the temperature. How involved are your MPs in this issue? Because, <coughs> excuse me, 
there's other issues you can come to me about now. So actually, it's not an issue for my constituencies. I don't know much about that. And I would refer to somebody else. But every constituency in the UK has got a drug problem. No MP should be able to walk away from this and say, well, that doesn't affect me. That's the, that's a, a different, that's a poorer area. Yeah, every constituency has got a drug problem. So every MP should in some way, shape or form educated in what they have to do. Why um, did this become an area of interest for you, Ronnie? I was born and brought up in Gunnar, you know, uh, four or five years ago when people said to me, does Inverclyde have a drug problem? I would joke about it and i say, no, we don't have a problem. There's drugs for everybody. And that was it. I grew up in an environment where there were drugs for everybody. I grew up in an environment where you could see it day in, day out, and you could see the harm that it was causing. Alcohol and, alcohol and drugs. You could see the harm it was causing. And it was, a leak, it was a leak UK. I went to an event they were hosting at Westminster. And at the end of a working day, you go to these events and you sort of sit ahead in the door and see if it's busy, see who's talking. And I went to this event uh, because I knew it was with the drug policy and I had an interest, I say, because of where I come from. Uh, and there were seven people at the top table to sit. And I thought, it's like seven, half seven at night, eight o'clock, seven speakers going to a long event. But I waited. Every single one of them was absolutely magnificent. They completely blew me away. And there were people from MI5, from the armed forces, police force, like uh, uh, London, the, the Met, uh, and Neil Woods, they're speaking from Bavo UK Leap. And I listened to what they were saying. And I walked out of that room that night and thought, that is quite remarkable. It really, when I heard law enforcement saying to me, what we are doing is not working. In fact, it's adding to the harm. That was a real bolt of lightning to me. So I talked to Neil at events about anything I can do to help, let me know. So I've got a working relationship with UK Leap ever since and kept that going. And on the back of that, you you, you start reading I've got a book. I don't do the bookshelf thing behind me, a lot of people do in telly. My bookshelf's over there and I've got how to regulate stumblings, the transform, chasing the scheme, young Harry, good cop, bad war. I've got uh, Darren's poverty safari out of Darren's man be guilty and I just read and read and read about it and I thought you get to a point where you think this is just the right thing to do you, you kind of walk away from it and think well, oh okay I've got a bit more knowledge but you know what what can I do this is just the right thing to do and it's just something with born and bred in this area sort of smoothed me into it. that UK Leap event was transformational in making me say okay you're an MP you can do something like this. Walk away from this with dereliction of duty. This is why, this is why you're elected, elected you to do this job. There's a responsibility in me to help people carry the voices. Because I'm not an expert on this. You know, I've listened to Darren there and Anne-Marie, which is listening to his on many an occasion, you know. And it's great. And I've met Peter, and I've talked to Peter, and I hear of, of, of really respect what he's doing with his van. So these guys, they absolutely get it. They understand that lived experience should be the heart of everything we do in trying to put together policies to improve the situation. So all I've really done is, is engage with people and given them a, something that bounce ideas off and something that criticise and shout at me because I'm a politician and they you know, blame me for whatever they want to blame me for. But uh, being born and brought up here, uh, seeing it in their own towns ever since I can remember, my dad had a pub when I was a week, when I was growing up, my dad had a pub. It was what we termed back in the 1960s, a working man's pub, which meant it was drink, 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 drink. There was no way of serving food or a pool table. It was, a, it was just a drinking man's pub. 
Because I grew up in that environment and, and saw all around me. Uh, and obviously, if we're not as bad now, we're still pretty badly off, but huge years of poverty and deprivation, and that's where it was centred. That's where you can see this. So, yeah, I, I guess it was just, I wouldn't say it was in my DNA, but it was certainly part of who I was as a person. And then having the opportunity as an MP to actually do something about it and being guided by people with so much lived experience, it's been a very well, journey I've been proud to take, you know, but, but, but happy to take. It just feels very comfortable. It just feels very comfortable with me. Do you, do you think that uh, there's any way that we could get the power to deal with this devolved um, and that we could somehow manage to treat it as a health problem? No. And I th- we are going to get political here. I think you've seen. The UK government has reneged and promises to devolve power. And in the last two or three weeks, they've started their union campaign. They've started the unit within the cabinet office called the Union Unit. There's also a group called the, the it used to be called the Nudge Unit. It's now some behavioural science unit. And they're all geared up to keeping Scotland in the union and keeping the powers of Westminster. Now, I don't, I don't want to be overly political on this subject matter, but answer your question, it's a straightforward no. Absolutely no interest. And giving Scotland or any of the developers, uh, Northern Ireland or Wales, uh, a, a more opportunity to do something in their own nation. You know, and we've seen it like yesterday or today, the announcement that, that part of the cabinet office is going to be in Glasgow and stuff like that. They're going to bring, they're going to treat it like a colony. You don't give the colony powers, you do to them. It's one, it's one nation conservatism, which, which they proudly boast of. One nation conservatism means they are born to rule over us, literally. They're born to rule over us. That's what it's about. Think they do in a, 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 a different fashion because they think they know better. So they'll take care of you. They just don't expect to be sitting at the same table as us making these decisions. And that's basically where we find ourselves right now. I'm, and I said, I'm sorry if I'm being political, but in answer to your question, it's a straightforward no, and that's the reason. The Conservative and Unionist Party have got no interest whatsoever in giving more powers to Scotland on any front. Do you think there's anything more that activists can do apart from letter writing um, to their, their MPs and MSPs? What about direct action? What do you think? Well, what action would you take? You know, protesting is something, you know, to be honest, most MPs are just blind to. When you're at Westminster, I'm working at Westminster, they'll just protest three, four times a day, and they're all very organised and coordinated. The police give you a slot, and you can march from three in the afternoon till five o'clock, you can have your rally here and you're away by seven. And they just they wash over you. You know, I've, I've, I've my offices on Parliament Street, not far from the Cenotaph, and I hear them go by my window and I stick my head out and think, who is it today, to be honest with you? But even during COVID, we can't do that anyway. So what sort of action do you need? You, you need better cover the media. The media has to be prepared to cover stories about drug addiction without putting a picture up of a, of a spoon and a needle and a burner, you know, and, and say, this is what it's about. They have to carry stories which people can read and not immediately give them that image of what we're talking about. Because it's a very complex subject, but the media have got a job here to carry. I mean, typically, you see dramas on television, and we know who the drug addict is, you know? We can tell by their behaviour, we know. There's kind of an absolute caricature of what we know it's to be, you know? It's for years with the caricature of the, of, the, of the Scotsman, he was always a drunk guy in the corner. You know? It's the same thing, the media, in news reporting and in drama, have got a job to do to represent a better picture of what addiction is actually all about and educate people. Uh, I keep saying educate people because to me, it's all about attitude and it's all about education. 
for, from individuals getting like, under under frustration is that I want to do something. It's the nudge process. You gotta say it, and you gotta say it, and you gotta say it, and you gotta keep on going because you don't know who's listening to you. So if you do a broadcast list tonight, and I think I've covered every single base, and I've said everything I've got to say, not everybody's heard it. So I've got to say all this, and I'll say it, and I'll say it, and I'll say it. People are sick to death of hearing it. And if we're all doing that, you know, if you're all doing that, if you're all pulling people up, first and foremost, pull people up with their language. I was talking to people in the local branch recently. Well, I was now, I apologise now. Phrases like junkie, smackhead, crackhead, don't use those phrases. If you hear somebody using that, pull them up out of it. See, you can't, junkie, you can't, you can't do that. And pull people up with their language and then start a conversation. I don't, I don't mean get in their face. I mean, go them up and explain to them. This is a personal health issue. How can you, how can you talk to them like and that sort of bringing people into it and making them realise. I think back to, you know, I'm 61 now, I think back when I was in my, my early 20s and stuff, like the language I'd used about gay people, about drug addicts, about Irish or whatever. And it was just too evidence. It wasn't malicious. But you keep that going and it sort of seeps into society. You have to catch that early and break it down and so you cannot paint people in this way. You, know, you, have to, you have to be more understanding about it. So the language people use is hugely important. Uh, getting some as much as you can into the media because yeah, occasionally the media will wake up to run a few stories, but then they go into the next shiny bobble of, of what's around you. And I, 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 I say, I know a few good reporters who want to carry more of this, but basically the editors say, Well, you've had your, you've had your week talking about drug issues, next week we're talking about something else. Yeah. And it has to be with, with the sort of figures we've got over 1200 uh, drug deaths in 2020 figures, that should be in the news every single day. With all due respect, we hear with COVID, deaths today due to COVID. How many deaths today do we have for drug addiction? Huh? Thanks again for giving your time to this. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. There is a false sense of morality at the heart of the problem. Do you think that um, there's a view that people, when they descend into drug addiction, that this is an indulgence or a weakness? And, and this is perhaps also something that's not tolerated in a, in a neoliberal society. I think absolutely there's just overtones of moralism everywhere. You know, people believe that, you know, you're, you're making bad decisions or bad choices. Um, tones of moralism are just really stupid now that we have neuroscience that tells us that this is a brain disease. And it's also you've got a genetic predisposition position in the same way that you would have to breast cancer for instance you know it's just you need the right environment for it to manifest so either there's still massive moral overtones and um, there's also really really polarizing ideology around this condition so you know you have social workers who believe it's a behavioral condition you know they're taught as part of their profession that it's a, a learned behavior <laughs> you know and to some extent that's true. You know, I grew I'm Irish Catholic. I grew up in a family where, you know, in the 70s, where all the men were either at bookies or in the pubs, they were hoarding back in their wages. The women were all, you know, sharing oxos with each other to try and put a dinner together. Do you know what I mean? It's there is a there is a lot to be said for learned behaviour, you know. Like when when I did get clean and sober. It was a complete shock to me that the rest of the world didn't drink and use drugs to oblivion. Do you know what I mean? That was that was completely normalised within my my environment. But 
so uh, th and there's other professions that you know as i said the neuroscientists are, so, so the neuroscientists you know they they now know that it's, it's a brain disease you know that our brain our brain circuitry gets hijacked like there's no sense of control or choice once you become physically or even mentally addicted you know it doesn't have to be a physical addiction it can be an obsessive and quite often that is the two components of any addiction it's obsession of the mind that tells you that's the solution whatever it is booze drugs shopping home cigarettes you know uh, chocolate you know that's the solution uh, and, and the obsession continually tells you that lie and then compulsion whereby once you take the first, I mean, one of the things that we, we highlight to people when we're asked about the moral question is, I say, you know, if we're in a room full of social workers or whatever teachers, I say to them, how many keep chocolate biscuits in the house? And you'll see half half of the room goes up and I say, well, see the other half, why do you not keep chocolate biscuits in the house? And say, well, once I start, I can't stop. So there's this physical compulsion kicks in once you have put the first one in and it's exactly the same for any addiction you know so the you know the choice um rhetoric is is it's actually laughable um if it was you know nobody grows up nobody wants to be an addict when they grow up do you know what i mean it's 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 really an anathema i'm just like are we still even discussing that that's mental do you know what i mean nobody in the right mind would choose this condition it's horrendous and in fact I think if people actually understood this condition and the mental element of this condition, they would be horrified. You know, even after 23 years, I, I don't crave alcohol or drugs anymore, but the mental side of this illness can, can really floor me. So there's a lot more to this condition than just using drugs. And I think our understanding as a society is, is embryonic of this condition. Uh, and I think history, will judge us very, very harshly for how we treat people with addictive or substance use disorders. This idea of, you know, people playing Russian roulette with their lives that you talked about at the beginning as well. I, I find that really, really upsetting that people can can find life so, so uncomfortable that they can do that. And obviously things like ACE, the adverse childhood experiences, play into that as well would you like to add anything to that the question i think around you know what is it what is it about people's lives that is so horrendous that they're willing to take their chances with these street valium right so you get into any community in glasgow and you can buy uh, or any poor community rather and you can buy these street valium for 20 pence right a can a can of super laggers like 150 i think is it i don't know it's been a long time since i've bought in like that but when you when you compare it even to booze, right, it's it's so cheap, right? So all you need is one or two of these to get out or not. That's 40 pence to get out or not, right? But everybody in you know these communities knows that you're playing Russian roulette, that they've you know, like I said, like we're burying thousands and thousands of people every year. The official statistics last year said twelve hundred, but I know we've buried 1,200 St. COVID easy in Glasgow alone, never mind anywhere else. So what is it about people's lives that they're just like, and, you know, excuse me for swearing, but they're just saying, fuck it. Do you know what I mean? They're saying, fuck it. You know, what is it that's so terrible? And, and I think 
you know, we've had, what is it, it's over a decade now, this austerity nonsense and, and unemployment has risen and the benefit system is so difficult to get, manage and, and, and navigate, uh, even, even reaching out for any sort of help. You need to be a mental health ninja to, to work your way through that system, do you know what I mean? So I, I think we really need to ask ourselves as a society, what is so wrong and why are we in so much despair that we're willing to, to do that, to kill ourselves? Got Simon McLean, who is an, an ex-police officer, and Simon is with LEAP Scotland. So first of all, Simon, can I ask you what LEAP stands for? The LEAP is a Law Enforcement Action Partnership. You know, I, I had a, a really interesting conversation with Simon a few weeks ago, and, um, you know, you, your experience as a police officer has taught you that the way that we're going with this is just nonsensical. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, of course. I like to do that at the start, just to show that anybody can become an activist. You don't need to be very clever or work a computer very well. <laughs> Glad to be here at last, and thanks for the invite. Uh, the thing I was going to say about activism, the, the, the discussion, and I could listen to this all night. I was hoping you'd forget about me and I could just listen to the stuff you're talking about because it's all an education for me because I'm quite new to this uh, in the last eight months or so. And we only started Leap Scotland in January of this year. So we're very much a new organisation, but I think uh, called for because we're basically retired and serving, more and more serving police officers every day joining us who all agree that this war on drugs is, uh, is a nonsense. Yes, absolutely, yes. So um, I had a question for you earlier as well about the prison population. And, uh, you know, it was quite shocking to me how many people in the prison population are really drug users. What can you tell us about that, Simon? The thing that immediately comes to mind is something that we speak about regularly is that it's much more expensive to keep people there and expose them to all the other forms of crime that they get educated on in there. And it would be to rehabilitate them and provide proper services for people, health services that could help people address these issues properly with counselling and rehabilitation and all the things that we know about that can help people make better life choices. So the prison, the prisons are run by the prisoners, really. And I know that from first-hand experience. And the way that they're appeased and the way that it runs is on a a mutual basis of understanding with the authorities that run the prison service, the Scottish prison service, and it wouldn't run without the, the say-so of the prisoners. And that's the way it's appeased, is because drugs are readily available of any description uh, inside the prison walls. And if we can't keep them out of prisons, which we keep saying we're trying to do, how on earth can we keep them out of the country or out of our communities or out of the actual streets that we all live in? Yes, yeah, I, you must be very frustrated at just the destruction um, and the nonsensicalness of this. What do you, what can Leap Scotland do about this? Well, we're doing lots just now, and mm -hmm. that, it's really that active thing that I want to speak to you about. Our chairman, Jim Duffy, has been doing this for 15 years now. <clears throat> when he was a serving police officer, he was an inspector and chairman of the Scottish Police Federation before he retired. And he goes round, not obviously in today's climate, but we hope to, to continue with his work going round round tables and, and uh, Lions Clubs and the Rotary and that kind of thing, doing talks, maybe 20, 25, 30 people at a time, 
But Jim tells a story that every time when he starts off the presentation that we do, which we can do in two or three minutes because it's not complicated, that he does a straw poll and asks people what they think of uh, decriminalisation of drugs. And invariably with that middle class audience, he maybe gets one or two that, that tentatively agree that we should decriminalise. And that's pretty much par for the course. My point is that what we're talking about here is coming to the degree of common sense now. And what we need to do is numbers, just like Anne-Marie says, we need to get the message out on websites. We need to do it collectively. That's why the partnership there is part of LEAP. Because as Jim says, at the end of his presentation, before he gets his meal and his wee dram, of course, uh, he does another straw poll. And invariably, it's reversed completely. And you're lucky if there's one or two that still think that decriminalisation is a bad idea. Because basically what LEAP would like to see, in association with it, all of the partners that we have, and we're working very closely with Transform and Anyone's Child that Anne-Marie mentioned earlier, Release and Drug Science, hundreds of organisations globally. We have an event this Monday about trauma awareness, and next April we've got an international event with police officers from Canada, Belgium, Scandinavia, coming to tell us how things are working in their countries, because there really is a momentum just now uh, and where we're headed. And our basic principle, I suppose, is that uh, drugs, aren't, drugs aren't illegal because they're dangerous. Drugs are dangerous because they're illegal. There has been a poll tonight and 100% of our attendees have said that drugs should be decriminalised. So, so I hope that heartens you, Simon. And I, 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 was only, I was only speaking for two minutes as well. That's amazing. Yeah. I can tell Jim Duffy it works. Yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, for me, it was so heartening to hear your story as a police officer. And, and also what was what was interesting as well was you were saying that during your time when you were working, you understood that what you were doing when you were busting drug dealers was actually making the problem worse. Yeah, there's a perception that uh, the war on drugs and police activity and whatnot is is uh, a negative thing. And it's not, not a negative thing, but it's not doing any good. I would go much, much further than that. The actual truth of the matter is, and the question I would like to hear asked when you have senior police officers on TV and whatever forum stating that they've just made a big drugs bust and £100 million worth of this or that has been recovered, I'd love someone to ask them, what do you think the effect of that is going to be today? What do you think you've just achieved? Because we know... You and I know, and 100% of the people that are on here tonight know, that all of the effects are negative as far as our communities are concerned. None of it is positive, and they haven't stopped any drug supply whatsoever. It used to be in the 70s and 80s, I could close Govan down for drugs for maybe a couple of days with really close attention and activity. Nobody could do that now for 20 minutes because of communications and the systems that organised crime have in place to keep the supply flowing. Nobody's going to go without their drug of choice because the police make an arrest or a seizure. That is total rhetoric, and we let them away with it time and time again. But the good news is that we're starting to see chinks in that armour, and we now have very senior police officers who might not be ready to come out publicly and say that, that this is the way to go, but they're already making moves. Uh, within their own uh, channels to do that. The, the war on drugs is the perfect storm for an increase in drug use, isn't it? Yeah. 
Listen, we, we've been speaking tonight a lot about lived experience, and I'm I'm very much involved in that just now in learning about it because I come from the other side of the fence, really. Although I was brought up in an alcoholic family with all the dysfunctions that that uh, entailed, but I'm very much about lived experience just now. And what dawned on me prior to coming on here was the people with lived experience that we don't talk about necessarily. You know, the other people with lived experience. And they can they involve a whole spectrum of society that we forget the consequences of this war on drugs for. I'm talking about the estimated 50,000 children who are abused as county line runners in England and Wales that we know of. And this is a very real child protection issue here in Scotland too. The decent people living in our prisons due to low-level drug abuse or drug use and petty crime that's associated with addiction. And that one we've already covered to some degree. All of the victims of violent crime, such as armed robbers, people trafficking, prostitution, modern slavery, and the sex industry, all of these people are suffering, not simply because of the war on drugs, but it's a big, big driver and a big financer of a thing that we call organised crime. All of our communities where money lending, money laundering are rife. Basically, all of the countless victims of organised crime. And this is a multi-billion pound industry that's raging all around us. And it's underpinned by these laws that ensure that it's stoked by the very people that we trust to fight against it. The police. Because every time they take what they consider positive action, they simply stoke the fire. And of course, we're all affected by the threat of global terrorism, vastly funded by the rewards and officers of those perpetuating this illegal drugs industry. And the other people with lived experience that I can vouch for firsthand are the coppers on the streets and the enforcement agencies who risk their lives day and daily, and all they're doing is digging the hole deeper and deeper. These are all victims of our current attitudes. And these are the realities of their lived experiences, although it's not very pleasant to hear or to think about. I think it's incredibly important that you've come on tonight and talk about this, Simon. I've got a question for both of you now. Can I ask the panel how will the drug how will drug regulation protect the most vulnerable who are at the highest risk of harm and developing addiction problems? Well, I don't know if it will. <laughs> especially the cohort that we're talking about here, you know, the people who are most at risk. So I don't know if any sort of regulation or, you know, decriminalisation would protect those people. I think there's there's lots of areas where decriminalisation or legalisation can be really useful, but when it comes to people wanting to escape their own circumstances, their own head or their own pain, I don't know if regulation or decriminalisation would prevent that. You know, ever since man first started crushing grapes, human beings have wanted to, you know, remove themselves from reality. But in particular, when it's around uh, trauma, for instance, there's a certain depth of oblivion required when we look at the, the, the evidence around ACEs, you know, adverse childhood experiences. For me, certainly being a survivor of sexual abuse and physical abuse and neglect, I'm always, I'm always sort of not minimizing it, but you know, there, there was a tremendous amount of 
abuse took place, do you know what I mean? So for me, the, the end game was, for using drugs was about self-soothing. You know, yes. It was, about, it was a compulsive self-soothing behaviour. So I think, I don't think decriminalisation would have helped that or legalisation or even regulation would have helped that. I would have still been looking for an end or um, an out for my pain. Where it would come in helpful though is in terms of when I got into trouble and then we can talk about the taxes that can be used to fuel the treatment system and used to, you know, come back in then. But I, it would certainly help the public purse, that's for sure. I agree with Anne-Marie 100% that without, that's the third tier of what LEAP is about, is that those services and uh, the recognition of why people use drugs in the first place. It's not because of something in their head that's not wired right. It's because of their experiences of poverty and their upbringing and the circumstances that they've been thrust into through no fault of their own. That's the third part of what LEAP is all about. And we hand that over gladly to all the partners like Anne-Marie's organisation and Peter Krikant and, and Kevin and all these people that have, that have got much more knowledge than we'll ever have of those issues. But what I can say is this. We spoke about gambling early on. And it has become regulated only since the 1950s. And until then, people who did have gambling problems, because it's naive in, the, in its uh, entirety to think that people didn't have these problems before we addressed them. Now there are safeguards in place. I'm not saying that they work or that they're perfect, but we're beginning to recognise that we can help people who identify as having particular issues in their lives. And that, for us, is what decriminalisation, not legalisation, we're not talking about free-for-all, we're talking about moving this into the realm of health, away from crime, where people can get the help and resources. Secondly, the regulation, which for me is the big one, because already every aspect of our lives is regulated, down to the air that we breathe, the broadcast that we're making tonight, the radios that we listen to, the newspapers we read, the cigarettes we smoke, you name it, everything that we can consume through our ears, eyes, our mouth, our nose is regulated but drugs aren't. And that's a deliberate ploy not to do that in order that people can be stigmatised and, and used as scapegoats in our society. Regulation would allow us to regulate each individual drug to its own tier. So it might well be that cannabis can be accessed like an off-sales within specific hours with age groups of obviously 21 or whatever we choose it to be, right up to opioid use, which might be on prescription and might be in controlled circumstances, like Peter again is trying to provide for people. And that regulation, I'm not saying it's going to dis uh, solve all our problems because it's a three-tier. They all work hand in hand. But when someone presents for the drug, then we can signpost them towards the resources that must be put in place to give counselling or advice or a simple warning that you get in a cigarette packet you certainly don't get that in a tenner bag in the streets of Glasgow, I can assure you. One of the things that we saw from the research that came out of Portugal, you know, and, and, and you know, the Portuguese model as it's portrayed, you know, it's a wee bit like Rochard's inkblot. You know, you can see there what you want to see. You know, the, the research isn't conclusive in a lot of areas, but one of the things that was very obvious was when they did go to decriminalisation, there was a spike in people coming forward. In fact, it was a 15% spike in people coming forward for treatment. Now, currently, our drug services and alcohol services are not fit for purpose. And if there was 15% of, you know, the Scottish population to come forward for help, 
that would be catastrophic. Do you know what I mean? To our current system as it stands now. So I, I always offer caution. I know that there's, you know, people who are, you know, quite, you know, advanced in their thought. And I love the work of Transform. I love the regulation idea. But I always have to come in and say whenever we get into this conversation that currently our treatment system couldn't cope with decriminalisation. It's no fit for purpose. Yeah. So... You know, we've got a lot of work to do, a lot of conversations to have, and it's not as simple as what people might, you know, think it is on an infographic, on Facebook or on Twitter. It's just, no, you know, that there's there's a lot of dangers here as well. I would like us to be more nuanced and more cautious in our discussion rather than saying we need to do this, you know, all the way. I'd like to thank both of you um, and all of our other speakers as well for this evening. I have been massively enlightened and I hope that everyone else has as well. And 